In our study this morning, I want to remind you that John, the Apostle John, writes to us this letter. And he writes this letter to the first century church, but he also writes it to believers today. He says in 1 John chapter 1, there in verse 4, he says, These things I write to you that your joy may be full. Now, if you look a little deeper into the Greek there, it actually insinuates that he's writing not only that our joy would be full, but also that his and the other apostles' joy would be full. And what makes the joy full in a believer is actually when the purposes of God are fulfilled in the lives of other believers. We're all interly interlocked and woven together so that our joy affects the, affects the joy of other believers. And so in 1 John chapter 1, he says, I write this to you so that your joy may be full. But then he also writes there in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not continue in sin. So joy is also something that multiplies when the life of the believer is purged and cleansed of sin. And specifically, habitual sin, sin that continues to ensnare you and rob you of the blessing of open fellowship with God. But then if you fast forward, or if you turn a page over to 1 John chapter 5, there in verse 13, he also says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life. No other religion, no other way to God, as it were. There isn't one, by the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But Jesus promises that there can be assurance that you actually have eternal life, that you are signed, sealed, delivered. If you want to go Aretha Franklin, you know, signed, sealed, delivered. We're his. And so he says, I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So there it is, that argument about is, is it up to God or is it up to me? And I would say yes, that I have free will to make decisions. He says, I write to you so that you may continue to choose to believe in the name of the Son of God. It's a continual choice. But in the same token, he says, I write to you so that you may know that you have, already have, sign, sealed, deliver eternal life. It's been done. The things that are done in heaven are done here on earth. And the thing that is bound up in heaven and the thing that is loosed in heaven, it also is bound up here on earth and loosed on earth. And so he writes this for the assurance of those who would waver or start to doubt whether or not what Jesus says is true and has been done in your life because you've confessed, you've repented of your sin, you've believed in Jesus. Now I want you to be secure. We all like security, right? We all like to know that our doors are locked. We like to know that there's somebody on the beat watching the streets, making sure that, that our family is safe. And yet one of the things that I think we don't think about as much is, am I secure eternally? We would all agree that we want our families to be secure physically, but eternally, in many ways, is way more important because even Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body and yet cannot kill the soul. Fear the one that can destroy the soul and place it in eternal burning fire. 
And so here we have, he's written to us so that we may know that we have eternal life and that we may continue to believe in the one who can save our souls. And so in 1 John chapter 4, he says, and we'll start today in verse 17, he says, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as Jesus is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And then he says this phrase, we love him because he first loved us. Now, if you remember and you've been with us, you recognize that this theme is recurring. Keeps talking about if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll love each other. If you love me, you'll love the brethren. And he says, and these, these commandments, he'll go on to say, are, are not a burden because the love of God has been poured out upon us. But he says, love has been perfected in us in this. Well, what is the this he's talking about? If you look back at last week's passage, verse 12 through 16, he says, no one has seen God at any time. And if we love one another, then God abides in us. So if you love one another as believers, then that there is evidence that the love of God abides in you if you love one another. Now, I was joking about this this morning, but we have at the table last uh, Friday night playing Dominion. You got Micah, you got Lucas, you got Jesse, and you got Michael Sylvie. Now, Jesse is a factory worker. He's a hardworking dude. He's a young guy. And I always marveled at this because when I started going to church, most of the people I hung out with were 10 years older than me. I didn't have anything in common with them. They had MBAs and they had, you know, they, they were administrators and they were doing this stuff. And so Jesse is, is a hardworking dude. And he's hanging out with all these guys that really what they have in common is if you really went down and tallied it, you know, one of them works in the school, one of them works in the police, uh, one of them works, you know, at, at Caledonia schools. And they really don't have much in common as far as their lives and their weaving. But they have Jesus and they had dominion, right? So they have this game that they're all working together to learn, and they all at least are able to bear with one another, although Jesse said he thought he made everybody angry because there was a card where you could steal other people's gold, and he was, apparently he was using it a lot, and so he was testing that love, but that love is there, right? So even when we mess with each other, we can, we can love one another. We can have show grace on one another. My point is, is that there's fellowship in this. And he says, if, if we love one another, then that's evidence that God abides in us and his love is being worked out in us. It's being perfected in us. It's maturing. It's coming to full bloom is the idea. So then he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his Holy Spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father sent the Son as Savior of the world. It's interesting he says that we have seen and we testify because he started this whole letter. Now, I know it was several weeks ago now. He says, that which was from the beginning, 1 John 1, verse 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life and the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was shown forth to us or manifested to us, 
That which we have seen and heard. There's the third time he said that. That which we have seen, that which we have heard. We declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. A direct result of fellowship with God is that we have fellowship with the brethren. And he says, truly our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you so you can enjoy them. You can have joy in this. That this is evidence of the salvation of God being worked out in you. That you have relationship with other people that believe the same thing that you do. And so he says, he continues on, We've seen and we testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses, verse 15, that Jesus is the Son of God, then God abides in him and he in God And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Then he goes on to say, our first verse for today, love has been perfected among us in this. All of that shows that love is being perfected. It's coming to full bloom in us. So then he goes on to say, a result of his love being perfected in us is that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. So in this way, love is being perfected and has been perfected among us. And so what way? Well, God's love is seen as we love one another, as we testify of who Jesus is and confess our need for him. And love is being perfected as we abide in him. His love is is pouring forth not only in us, which is good. We need God's love poured into us, but it actually pours forth through us. Instead of becoming a reservoir to hold all of God's love, we become a conduit. We become essentially like a gutter pipe when you got a heavy rain. His love pours in us, it affects us, but it goes through us into the lives of others. It, 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 we become part of the tributary of God's love. We become part of what supplies it. And a result of that is we'll have boldness on the day of judgment. Now, what does he mean by boldness? I guess I need to turn my clicker on and then we'll know. Boldness in the day of judgment. Now, wait a minute. God's word says, judge not lest you be judged, right? So that means that as far as Christians are concerned, we should never judge anybody. Is that what he's talking about? No, he's saying we'll have boldness on the day that we are judged by God. Because God is the judge of all humanity. So, but we need to talk about what judgment is because there's multiple types of judgment spoken of in the New Testament. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Paul speaks about this judgment in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you get too far to the left, you'll be in Romans or Acts, but then you turn to the right, you'll see first and then 2 Corinthians. Chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent that we're wearing, this body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house that was not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, we will be clothed in Christ's righteousness." For we who are in this tent, we groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. 
Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And we spoke about that here in the same chapter, that he's given us of his Spirit, and that Spirit living within us and the evidence of that Spirit in us is the guarantee. It's the down payment. It's the, it's the earnest, if you will. If you've ever bought a piece of property, sometimes you lay down some money, and that's earnest saying, I'm going to buy the whole thing. So much that I'm willing to risk X amount of dollars. And if I back out, then I'm out that money. And so he's given us his Holy Spirit to say, hey, I'm going to buy the whole thing. Matter of fact, he already has, but he's already given a down payment. So we are always confident. There's that same word as boldness on the day of judgment. He says we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. He says, we are confident, yes, and well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And so therefore, that's why I read that whole passage. He says there in verse 9, therefore, because this is true, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. Whether we feel like we're in the presence of the Lord or whether we feel like we're not in the presence of the Lord, whether we're at church, whether Paul was at their church, or whether he was out traveling, he, Paul says, whether anybody's watching or not, that's character, right? It's how you act when nobody's watching or when people are watching. It's the same. He says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to who? To him, to God the Father, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And he's going to divide between the hay and the stubble and, and the precious metals. And now our works will be judged and they will be either consumed or they will be refined. But the things that we do in our body, they matter. He says, knowing, verse 11, therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So there's this fear that should well up in the believer, and there's this fear that should well up in the non-believer. Now, Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, but the terror of the Lord, this holy fear that says, oh my goodness, I'm going to get squashed. Or the thought that says, well, if I go to church, the, the, ceiling, the roof's going to cave in. You know, that idea comes from this terror of the Lord. I'm not right with him. I know that. I know there's a consequence for that. Now, the terror doesn't always cause people to do anything about it. They'll just go, I'm going to church. The roof's going to cave in. But the other side of it is, is that the fear of the Lord is, is also for the believer, but it's not a terror, it's not torment, not knowing what's coming, but instead it's the knowing what God expects, living the way he expects us to live, and then trusting that he's going to work all that out. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the fulfillment of wisdom, it's the beginning. It causes us to open our eyes and go, hey, there's a judgment coming, how am I going to get ready for that thing? But then if you look at it, this is the judgment seat of Christ that he's talking about. There will be a judgment for us as believers for what we've done with what Jesus has given to us. 
But then there's also a judgment for non-believers as well, spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have ever studied the book of Revelation, but it is Revelation singular, not Revelations, Revelation. And I will always correct people on that because it is the singular revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. If you're confused and you're like, this is kind of a scary book, then you don't recognize that it's revealing the person of Jesus Christ. But in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it speaks about this thing called the great white throne judgment. Now, if you're in Christ, you never see this thing. But if you're not, the holy terror, of the fear of the Lord that causes you to shake and not be able to sleep at night should be there. John writes, he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. This is the book we want our names to be in. This is the book that, that keeps us from this white throne judgment. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now, notice what it says here in verse 15. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what we need to know about this lake of fire is it actually wasn't created for human beings. It was created for Satan and the rebellious angels that departed from serving God day and night. And so hell wasn't created for humans. God's not willing that any should perish, but he's given every possible way for us to escape judgment, for us to have our sin cleansed and covered and, and, and completely removed. He took our judgment so we don't have to be judged. And so I say all this about judgment because here we are. He says here in 1 John, love has been perfected in us in this so that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Now, I'm not going to ask for a, a rising of hands, but how many of you have been, I have, in court where I was going to be presided over or judged over? I had a case where I had been in a wreck. And I got a ticket for careless and imprudent driving. Now, I won't go into all the details because it wasn't me. I, was, I wasn't guilty. You know, every, nobody's guilty, right? Everybody in jail says it wasn't my fault. I was framed, whatever. But the reality is you have a judge sitting over you and with a swing of his gavel and his ruling within the law, he gets to tell you what's going to happen with the next however many years of your life whether you're going to be free or whether you're going to be incarcerated. And he gets to make that decision, that judgment. And I think that if we really considered this, we would be a little less uh, apt to say things like, well, when I meet God, I got some things to talk to him about. I, I don't think we'll have a word to say. I don't think we'll have a moment where we'll even feel confident to say, unless we're in Christ. He says, so that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Now, the day of judgment will not look like me going, hey, I wasn't really speeding. 
because they never take your word over the police officer. He works for them. Now, our day and age is changing, right? There's a different climate that goes along with that. We don't respect authority like we used to. But my point is, even with the most lenient judge, the the only time I've ever been in court, I did not walk in there and go, not guilty, leave me alone. I didn't say anything. I said, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, just like I did at the side of the police officer's car. Yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Why? Because I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know if he's a righteous or an unrighteous judge. I don't know if he's one of those that says, hey, hang them all. Let God sort it all, you know. I don't know. So I don't have boldness. That's traffic court, by the way. The holy terror of the Lord standing before his throne will be not like sitting in front of a Judge Judy. It will be like standing in front of a holy, righteous, perfect judge that has holes in his hands, that stretched out his entire body to do all that he could so that there would be no written requirements against you. He paid your punishment. You don't even have to go to the throne room that way. You can go completely righteous to the throne room and go, how's it going, Jesus? And be confident that he's going to go, it's going good. Come on in. Welcome in, my good and faithful servant. Boldness. So what does this boldness look like? I have for you here a picture. And we're not going to get to Pilate and Jesus yet. But believers will be bold on the day of judgment like Daniel's friends were. Turn with me to Daniel 3. I love the stories of Daniel. Probably because I read them the most with my kids and a storybook Bible. Because, I mean, Daniel in the lion's den... Should have marked the page. If any of you guys ever feel like when we do Bible drill and I'm going too fast, the Lord just slowed me down right now. Ezekiel and then Daniel, right? Yep. There we go. We did it. Daniel chapter 3, verse 8. We know the story. It's a well-known story. King Nebuchadnezzar builds a huge statue it's made out of all gold in defiance against God who gave him a vision that there would be a statue made of multiple things and that the gold on the statue represented his kingdom. So King Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue and then he commands all of his leaders of the nation and all the nations he rules over. And he says, come in. I've got this statue I want to show off. It's in the plains of Dura. He puts it in the plains so you can see it for miles so everybody can show up. It's like going to a rock concert. It's, it's like for miles you can see people that are doing exactly what their king told them to. And as they stand there, he says, there's going to come a time when music plays. When it does, you're going to bow down to my statue. You're going to pay uh, respect to the authority of your kingdom. And so it says here in Daniel chapter 3, verse 8, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and they accused the Jews because they spoke to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of all these instruments in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and pay obeisance or worship the gold image. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst 
of a burning fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know them as Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. This did not make Nebuchadnezzar happy. So Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and a fury, like any respectful king, throws a conniption fit, and he says, he gave the command to bring these three men. So they brought these men before the king. So this is a picture of judgment. They're getting ready to be judged for the deeds that they have lived out in the body. Judgment doesn't start just with God. We get judged all the time here on earth, right? We're being judged, maybe not in a courtroom setting, but by our peers and by those that we work for and those that we go to school with. We're we're being judged. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, I'm going to give you a second chance, he says. If you're ready at that time, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, then good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Do you see the parallels here? If they don't bow down and worship this king, they're going to be thrown in the fire. Do you know that this is not what God's saying? He's not saying, worship me or I'm going to burn you up. He's saying, I love you. I care about you. He's not forcing anybody's hands. He never says, bow down or I'm going to kill you. He says, if you believe my words and you follow them, there's life attached. But if not, it's going to go badly for you. It might sound like the same thing, but it's not. This man is forcing these men to bow the knee. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to answer you in this matter. If that's the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will, will we worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, this is a great story, as long as you're not those men. Unless they know the God that loves them. Unless they know and they're thinking outside of the physical. They know that God can physically deliver them from fire. They've read their Old Testament. They were devout Jewish men. But they also know that even if he doesn't, that there's a resurrection and that there's life beyond this physical flesh. God already made provision for that. He promised them that. So they didn't think with their flesh and go, I want to save my own skin, so I'll do whatever I can. They thought, I trust God. I don't fear this king. The avoidance of the terror of this king doesn't come because these guys were perfect and it doesn't come because they were courageous. They were courageous, but they were trusting in their God, not their own strength to save them. And so as we look at this story, notice the boldness. If you don't bow down to this statue, I'm going to burn you immediately. 
And they had already even taken this. He's getting ready to turn the furnace up seven times as hot as it's ever been fired. The men that will throw them into this fire will perish. This king's okay with anybody perishing. Our king's not okay. He's not willing that any should perish. And so my point is, when he tells them, I'm going to burn you up, he says, we have no reason to answer you in this. That's boldness. That's trust. God's love had been perfected in them so much that they trusted him above their physical bodies being destroyed. And so when was Jesus bold? When was he confident in judgment? When was Jesus judged? Think about the life of Jesus. How many times were people judging him? I would submit to you that they were judging him his whole life. What good thing can come out of Nazareth? What, what good thing can come out of Podunk? Who's this kid? When they accidentally left him at the temple and he was teaching the scribes and the Pharisees, and they come back and they go, who is this kid that he has all these no- this knowledge about God? They were sitting there listening to a child speak about things that they had been learning their whole lives and hadn't quite worked out. And Jesus had this spirit of wisdom within him that made them want to sit there and just listen for hours. And they were judging him. So who sat in judgment over Jesus? Well, I would submit to you that the the scribes and the Pharisees did over and over again. You can't heal on the Sabbath. This man speaks from Beelzebub. This man's driving out demons by the power of Satan. That sounds like pretty harsh judgment, right? And yet we look at the final judgment. I I was thinking about how Jesus experienced judgment. And no doubt, Pilate judged him and put the sentence of death on him. But his whole life was that of being judged by the opinions of men. So if you ever felt like your life is always being judged by the opinions of men, Jesus can relate to that. His was unfair. Some of yours is unfair. You can go to him and say, Lord, I'm being judged, and I know you know how that feels. Please help me to be grace-filled, even though they're judging me. Please help me to forgive those who are constantly judging my actions and not my intentions. We do that, right? We can't judge people's hearts. You do not know what people are thinking when they do the foolish and the awesome things they do. But we always have this tendency to make assumptions about what they intended. I think they meant this, or I think they meant that. We always judge other people on what they do versus their intentions, and people always judge us based on what we do versus our intentions. And in the meantime, we want people to judge us based on our intentions when we mess up. But Jesus was a judge based on his actions, and yet his intentions were perfect, and so were his actions. He never broke one law. He never sinned. We can't even fathom that. And yet at the end of his life, in John chapter 18, he's placed under judgment by this man by the name of Pilate. Pilate was an unrighteous man, otherwise he never would have had leadership in in the Roman kingdom in any form or fashion. But in John chapter 18, verse 28, we find this another well-known story. It says, They led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. So this is after all night long. 
He's been judged by the, the royal council, and they, can't, they don't have the authority to criminally uh, do corporal punishment. And so early that next morning, he was taken by Caiaphas to the praetorium, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium because it was an unclean place, but they sent Jesus in there. Uh, they're claiming he's defiled, that he's unholy, that he's unrighteous, that he's claiming to be God. And then to, to sum it all up, they send him into this place that no Jew should enter and lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So they were trying to remain clean. Verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So they're carrying him to the judge. And they answered and said to him, if if he were not an evildoer, would we not have delivered him up to you? Well, that's not what they asked. They said, what exactly has he done? Well, he's evil. We're not going to bring somebody to you that's innocent. So then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your laws. He didn't want any part of it. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That and, and they said this saying of Jesus so that they might be fulfilled what he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Because the only way you would die in Rome as a criminal would be on the cross. And this fulfills the Old Testament that said he would be stretched out on a cross. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? He's kind of back-talking. Are you asking a question that you have, or have you been told by the people that brought me that you need to ask this question? Who, who are you serving, Pilate? Who's in authority here, the Jews or you? He's questioning Pilate's authority. That's pretty bold. Can you imagine standing before a judge saying, Who do you work for? Are you in charge of this courtroom or are, the, or are the lawyers? I don't think that would go well. I think you'd probably be put in jail on contempt. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? So he's trying to get to the bottom. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. He's answering eternally. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. That's eternal perspective. He knows whose turf he's on. So Pilate said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth will listen to my voice. So then we fast forward to John 19, verse 5. And it says, after he's been mocked, after he's had a criminal released instead of him, and, and he's been mocked by these, and, and they, they jammed thorns on his head, Jesus came out, verse 5, wearing the crown of thorns. He's bleeding. They put a robe on him to mock him. And Pilate said to them, Behold, the man that you wanted me to judge. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they were not satisfied. They cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, You take him and you crucify him, for I don't find any fault in him. See, when they would do the flagellum and they would beat a man, it was to try to get a confession out of him. They were essentially torturing him to get him to go, I confess. And many times, because they would beat them so ruthlessly, 
They would confess whether they did it or not. So Pilate's going, he's withstood the test. If there was some sort of wickedness in him, he would already gave it up because he's in pain. They beat him so badly that you could see his internal organs through his ribs. Brutal. Worse than any Mel Gibson movie I've ever seen. And he's done some pretty brutal ones. But then you watch the crucifixion one where Christ is in it. You just see this bloody, gory mess. And it's almost to the point where it's like, do I need to watch this? But to try to encapsulate and understand how much Jesus went through to take our judgment for our sin, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. So therefore, when Pilate, verse 8, heard that saying, he was more afraid because they said to him, uh, we have a law and according to our law, he ought to die, verse 7, because he made himself the son of God. He's claiming to be God. He's blaspheming. Now, Pilate, seeing how he handled the torture, then hearing why they're charging him for claiming to be the son of God, I think he has some doubts going on here. Uh, what if he is the son of God? Uh, I've never seen anybody survive torture like that. There's something special about him. And so Pilate heard that saying. He was more afraid. He went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not answer. He rejected to answer. That's bold. And then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Don't you know at my word you can either be punished or set free? You're not going to defend yourself, Jesus? Well, we know that Scripture said he wouldn't defend himself. But in verse 11, Jesus answered, you could, have now, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So again, he's questioning the authority that Pilate has. The only reason you got authority to crucify me is because my father gave it to you. <laughs> if you're a teacher and somebody says, you can't punish me, you're not my dad. If you're a step-parent, and someone says to you, I don't have to do what you do. You're not my, you're not my dad. You're not my mom. <laughs> what does that do to you? What? <laughs> that almost instills you're going to get in trouble. But Jesus does that in boldness, not because he's trying to be insolent. Because it's true. No one had authority to cru Who crucified Jesus? Was it the Gentiles? Was it the Greeks? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? The reality was is it was God's plan. He was born to be a crucified king. He was born to be a martyred king. He was born to be the propitiation, the payment for our sin. It was God's plan. Nothing happened to Jesus that God didn't plan. And so why am I saying all this? I even talked about my little Doritos picture there. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with anything, but it's bold. Those are Jack Doritos. And then I realized after Google searching that boldness, do, do something bold was actually a White Castle thing. You know, that's bold. There was like a picture of somebody tattooing White Castle on the side of their head. That's a bold move, right? I don't know, but I think if we were in the room while Pilate was essentially cross-examining Jesus, and Jesus goes, you don't have any authority unless I, my father gave it to you. 
I think there'd be a bunch of people go, whoa, you know, like in the dance-off movies where like the guy does the move and then everybody goes, did you just see that? You know, maybe that wasn't your, your deal. <laughs> Sorry. Um, back to 1 John. I'll come back to it, I promise. Boldness in the day of judgment is a reflection that the spirit that was in Jesus is also in us. We won't be bold like insolent bold. We will be bold because we know what saved us has nothing to do with our works or our failures. And, and I think that there's a lot of believers that I've talked to in the last several years where I ask them how they're doing spiritually. And maybe this is you. And, and their answer comes like, I'm doing okay, but I'm not sure how happy God is with me. And I think that that's, there's a good examination that needs to happen. But I think there also needs to be some joy there to go, but then I'm thankful because it's not dependent upon me. Jesus paid the price for my sin. His righteousness is my righteousness. As he is right now in heaven is what First John says. I am here on earth. When God looks down upon me, he doesn't see the fact that I didn't or did this or that. He looks down upon me and he sees me in his son, trusting in the son. And we're going to have good days with that. We're going to have really bad days with that. And the question is whether or not you're willing to own that, admit it, and get back under the sun. Get, repent of that thing. Move forward. Confidence on the day of judgment is going to be because of the confident one that we trust in. And so he says there, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear involves torment. You ever have a day where you're tormented and you're like, man, I really messed up. But we don't have to have torment because we know who's loved us. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. He who fears doesn't understand how complete that God's love is to cover a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. We love him because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. Think about the story of Peter when Peter denied Christ three times. And then Jesus gets crucified and all the disciples kind of regroup and they go back to the fishing boats. And they're out fishing all night and they wake up. And I don't think any of them slept. I think they were all overwhelmed with sorrow and grief and just trying to find something else to do. And the next morning, they're on the boat. Jesus is on the shore and he's cooking fish and he calls out to them. He calls out to them, how's the fishing essentially? And then Jesus, Peter looks up. And he sees who's on the shore, and he says, it's Jesus. And did you notice that the first thing he does isn't, he doesn't say, hey, guys, we need to go the other way. I'm embarrassed. He puts on his cloak, which I, I still don't understand. He takes his stuff with him. He jumps in the water, and he swims to shore. His first response to seeing the one he let down was to go to him, not run from him. You ever thought that was intriguing? When I mess up, and then I see somebody in town that I messed up and sinned against, my first response isn't to go, hey, let's go make it more awkward. Let's go see him and approach him. Hey, sorry about that the other day. No, I'm always like, don't want to have this conversation. Go to the next aisle. Eh, maybe I need kidney beans instead of chicken. You know, like, avoid it. 
But I think that we see Peter's response to seeing Jesus the first time. Because though he knew he messed up, he knew that Jesus loved him. And he knew he had failed at loving Jesus, but he still knew that Jesus loved him. And I love that because he wasn't tormented by it. He's just broken over it. And I love this because perfect love changes us from, I hope, when, I hope no one saw what I did, or I hope God didn't see this, to, hey, Daddy, watch. You ever notice a little child when they're right with you? They want you to see everything they do to the point where they won't stop yammering about it. Daddy, Daddy, watch this, watch this. I've seen it already. But they just want you to see what they're doing. And I think when we recognize how perfectly we've been loved, our response to Jesus is no longer, hey, I really messed up today and I don't want to talk about it. Our response is, yeah, I messed up a whole bunch, but watch this. Watch this, Dad. I want to show you something. And uh, so let's, as we close up, turn with me to Matthew 25. Because when we recognize that we've been loved so perfectly, it causes us to love others the way that we have been loved humbly. And I think that's the point of what he's going to talk about. The perfect judgment of the Son of Man is described here in Matthew 25, verse 36. Excuse me, 31. Jesus speaking, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he's talking about his second coming. He's talking about judgment. And all the holy angels are with him. And then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared to you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on the left, you didn't do any of this for me. You didn't do any of this. And they're going to say, when did we see you? He says, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into the everlasting punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. The person that has been perfected in love will show the love that it's first received, that he or she has first received. And the person that rejects his love, that is tormented by that, will remain cold towards others. So my question is, as we read verse 19, we love because he first loved us, is what moves you to love? Is it the ought to? I really should. Is it the, I really should? Is it guilt? that causes you to want to love other people? Or is it verse 19? I've been loved. How can I not love other people the way I've been loved? Because there's no torment in that. 
God's not given us a spirit of fear, 2 Timothy 1.7, but he's given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind so that we can overcome. Not only that we can love the people that are lovable, but so we can love people that hate us and persecute us and say all kinds of vile things against us and that have a history against us. We can love them because Jesus loved us like that. And so um, back in 1 John, he says that. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who, does, who loves God must love his brother also. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love that not only covers us, but it changes us. Lord, I want to have the boldness now, today, before the day of judgment eternally, I want to have boldness in the judgment of the eyes of men. Not to be mean, not to be obtuse, not to be crass or holier than thou, but I want to have boldness to testify that nothing can happen to me apart from you allowing it. I want to have boldness to testify that my life has been changed because of what Jesus has done for me. And that change, that death, that burial, that resurrection, that giving of free eternal life that comes by repentance and faith in the Son of God is available for every one that we talk to. And I ask for your forgiveness, Lord, that I'm not bold today in the day of the, in the judgment of the eyes of men to be that open and that honest with people that don't know you, that, that judgment is coming, and yet the judge has been judged for us and has made payment so that we don't have to be judged. Matthew 7 says, if we would judge ourselves, then we will not be judged. If we would see ourselves in need of forgiveness and salvation, then we won't be judged because we'll be in the Son. And so, Lord, Help us to trust in that judgment and help us to be those who would judge others worthy of hearing that good news. Help us to have boldness to share this good news with the people that we know, the people that we don't know, the people that we love. Here comes Thanksgiving and Christmas, the best time to share the love of Christ. I'm just so thankful for that. But it's wasted if we just go to it and we don't say a word about what Jesus is doing. So Lord, give us boldness and help us not to fear. Lord, we love you. We thank you for first loving us. We thank you for your death. We thank you for your willingness to suffer unrighteously. And we thank you that you did it because you love us. Greater love has no man than that he would lay down his life for his friends, that we would be called, that I would be called a friend of God is just amazing to me. Lord, would that love compel me to be bold? Would that love send us out in boldness? In Jesus' name, amen.